This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, we wanted to kind of dip our toe into this whole Alberta separation. I know they call it Wexit. I actually really hate that term because there is not a West exit. It's an Alberta discussion. Okay. It's not a BC discussion. We are the West here too. So I don't like that hashtag Wexit that is going around. I feel it's really inaccurate. This is something that Alberta is dealing with. So you want to know how I feel about this? Well, it's very, very simple. My feelings, interestingly enough, are exactly summed up by Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister. You overcome your difficulties together. Don't threaten to leave. I listened to this from Quebec for years, and I don't like listening to it from Western Canadian friends of mine. So, no, I have no time for that kind of thing. We're going to make the country work. We work together on it. We make a commitment to it. It's a relationship. My wife and I have been together for 35 years, and we don't get stronger as a couple by threatening to leave every week. That right there, the part about his wife, that is exactly right. Can you imagine... Every time you had an argument with your spouse and your spouse said, what are you going to do? Divorce me? That's it. You're like, is that it? I'm not going to lie. Actually, my spouse has said that to me before and we actually get into more of an argument at that point, which is why I feel so passionately about this because I get so mad when I hear that. And I think, can we not have a constructive discussion about how to make things better without having that dealt from the bottom of the deck? It doesn't work. And I don't think it works in this case. And yet that's what we keep hearing. We hear Albertans just being nasty to Newfoundlanders now too. I saw this last night and I thought, well, this is ridiculous. It's just, it seems like it's getting out of control. So for our hot question of the day today, we wanted to know what is your message from BC to our neighbors in Alberta? Do you say, you know what? I feel you. You deserve more support. Or do you think, get over yourselves. Every province has issues. We work together. We're a family and we deal with it. Or maybe you've got some other thoughts on that. Reply, let us know. So you can use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. You can also uh, go right online and use it on Twitter, at CKNW or at Simisara980. Cast your vote on that. Or you can email me, simi at cknw.com. I just hate this thing that seems to happen with either Quebec or Alberta, that whenever things don't go their way, they start threatening to leave. And I think, how are we supposed to have a constructive discussion it's like trying to talk to your teenager about, you know, this and that. And they're like, I'm going to run away. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run away. You can't have a, like any kind of productive discussion about fixing things when the, there's this constant threat of we don't like, we're not getting what we want. Therefore, we're out of here. That just seems childish to me. Now, what's your take? What is your message to Alberta on this from B. Sears? Let me know. Again, you can use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, and really weigh in on our poll, which you'll find online at Twitter. It is at CKNW or at Simisarah980. And yes, drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. Indigenous peoples have suffered historic injustices as a result of colonization and dispossession of their lands, their territories, and their resources. And meaningful reconciliation calls upon all of us to act to address these wrongs so that we can build a brighter, more inclusive and equitable future for everyone. That is Scott Fraser. He is the Minister for Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. He's speaking in the BC Legislature in just the past few minutes, actually. So what we know with the big news on the provincial government front today is that the government of Premier John Horgan is set to introduce human rights legislation today, hoping to become the first province to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so that would mandate that the government bring in provincial laws and policies and make put them into to harmony, essentially, with the aims of that declaration. So the minister, Scott Fraser, says the legislation is a BC version 
of a federal bill that died on the Senate order paper when Parliament had adjourned for the election that we just had on Monday. So we are going to be talking more about this today. There's a lot more to come. Premier John Horgan will be having a press conference. There's, of course, many questions about how this is going to work, the legal definition of certain terms that are that are in there. We are tracking down some experts on this who can talk to us about the legalities of those things. So stay tuned on the show today. Also, of course, a big topic of discussion is that Prime Minister Trudeau uh, really had a press conference yesterday and had a lot of message for people who live in the western part of Canada, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, where his party, the Liberal Party, got a really rough ride. And he said that people across the country need to understand that people in those two provinces have faced very difficult years. And he was responding really to this whole Uh, Western separation chatter that has been going on online. Here's some of what he had to say yesterday. For a long time, they weren't able to get their resources to markets other than the United States. Uh, We are moving forward to solve some of those challenges, but it's going to take all Canadians sticking together. Now, we're going to talk more about both of these stories now with the help of Keith Baldry, Global's Legislative Bureau Chief in Victoria, who joins us now. Hi, Keith. Hi, Keith. Hi, Simi. How are you? Good, good. Good. Okay, let's start with what's going on in Victoria today. What? So what's going on with this legislation? How historic is this? Oh, it's it's pretty historic. It, uh, BC is the first uh, province uh, in, in the country to formally enshrine into law the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And it will apply to all existing um, pieces of legislation that are on the books already and to future ones as well. And it's basically legislation designed to promote, advance, and protect the rights of Indigenous people and their culture and the lands in which they lay claim. It's uh, it was This declaration was first made in 2007. 144 countries have adopted it uh, to varying degrees in terms of implementation. Uh, with the technical briefing I received this morning, reporters received this morning, it was indicated to us this is a very much a long-term thing. This is going to take years, probably more. In fact, the federal bill you referenced that died on the order paper referenced 25 years to implement Ooh. this type of approach because many, many pieces of legislation have to be amended and future legislation has to be written in a way that ensures that these rights are, are enshrined in, into law. Where the, the, the problem is going to be, where the controversy is going to be, Simi, is there's 43 or 42 articles in this, uh, I think 46 articles in the Declaration. One of the articles, it's 30-something, is where everybody's going to seize, uh, which is that First Nations have to be given, have to have free, prior, and informed consent. Right to anything that happens on lands that they claim as uh, as uh, ancestral rights. And that's been interpreted by various people, including lawyers on both sides of the issue, interpret that clause differently. Is it a veto? Uh, some people say it is a veto. Others argue it is not a veto. But that's, that's really where we're into murky territory. Uh, industry is very nervous about this, that one particular clause, because as we've seen in our ongoing controversies over pipelines in, yeah. this, in this country, you've got First Nations support a project, but another First Nations along the route of, say, a pipeline opposes it. Does that mean that can't go ahead because the First Nations doesn't have, hasn't given consent? So we're into uncharted territories here in many ways. Uh, it is a historic day, but how this plays out down the road, I don't think anybody really has a, a grasp of yet. Okay. And now, is this legislation set to pass? Is this something the Greens are going to support? Oh, yeah. Greens are very much in favor of this. Uh, Adam Olson uh, is an Aboriginal uh, member of the legislature for the Green Party in Saanich North and the Islands. He wore his uh, ceremonial uh, headdress into the legislature today. So it is going to pass. Uh, I even think the Liberals will probably support this bill. Um, there's a lot of uh, First Nations dignitaries in the House chamber right now on the floor. They're about to address the House. Uh, Chief Ed John, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip. Um, no, it's a, it's a big ceremonial day, but also a very important historic day. And it's, it, it will pass the legislature, and BC will be the first jurisdiction in the country to have UNDRIP formally on the statutes. Okay, so we are de- we're definitely going to be talking more about this too, Keith, but I know that's happening this morning. I also want to talk, though, about something that you've been very active discussing this <laughs> in the last couple of days. And this is this idea of Alberta separation, because you've been talking about this on Twitter. And what's the response that you've been getting? 
I think I've had five, almost 5,000 responses, and it's, it's interesting. So my take was, you know, this is silly, you know, enough about this. I even said, you know, for those talking Western separatism, you know, grow up. It's, this is not what, and basically in sort of starker, harsher words than what Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister said yesterday, yeah. where he took a shot at Jason Kenney and Scott Moe, the, the premiers of Alberta and Saskatchewan, respectively, saying, no, this is, you know, get with it. This is our country. You don't, you don't talk separation just because you don't get your way at uh, the voting booth. Um, Alberta, understandably, is upset at its economic situation. It does feel, I think, put upon by other provinces or other jurisdictions, but I, I don't think that's a fair accusation against either the federal government or other provinces that some how we're all joined in strangling their economic, their uh, provincial economy, and you don't settle things by separating from the country. And so I just sort of called them uh, some people to task on that on Twitter. But as I say, that blew up, and a lot of people are mad at me in Alberta. But a lot of people outside of Alberta are saying, "Yeah, exactly. This is uh, this is not a grounds for separation because everybody voted a different way than you did. Right. Uh, this but is not what confederation is all about." You have said before, though, as well. Like you've you've been on like talk shows in Alberta many times, and there seems to be this almost lack of understanding, like a very different idea of what's going on with something like the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It's like oh, a perception yeah, no, issue. It, it, it's amazing. That that um, the misconceptions that are out there, first of all, that somehow the B.C. government is blocking the pipeline. It is not blocking the pipeline. It's granted every permit that's been, it's, that's been put in front of it to allow this pipeline to proceed. The federal government bought the pipeline, for goodness sakes, and is trying to get the thing built and expanded, doing everything it can. Where this is falling apart or where, where it's becoming stalled is in the court system. And if Alberta wants to be upset with the courts and the various parties that challenge the pipeline in the, the project in the courts, I mean, that's, that's different, but to accuse other democratically elected governments of somehow trying to sabotage their economy in this pipeline is just wrongheaded, and to use that as grounds for separation is just uh, it's just misguided, to say the least. It's a little bit dangerous, too, isn't it? Like, with the political climate the way it is right now to be stoking this? Oh, I agree. I mean, national unity is a, is a little... Um, shaky right now, and there's no question. you got the Bloc Québécois ascending uh, to new levels in Quebec for the first time in, well, more than a decade, and now you've got Jason Kenney uh, saying Alberta feels betrayed by the election result. Uh, we've got two or three different solitudes in this in this country that have emerged right now, and we do have to be careful about some of the language that's being used uh, to promote uh, what really are extremist views. And uh, it's amazing when you look at Alberta, the election results in Alberta, how many Conservative MPs were elected not by in squeaky by squeaker uh, no, results. We're yeah. talking eighty percent, eighty five percent of the of the vote going all one way. It's a very monolithic uh, public uh, type of public opinion in Alberta right now, which is why I think we are also seeing sort of the this, this sort of separation being stoked. Uh, separation talk being stoked by political leaders because it probably matches where public opinion is, uh, which is really at odds with public opinion across the country. Right. And but this was also the founding, I seem to remember, of the Reform Party. This is how that yep. got started. Yep. Deborah Gray and other MPs, it, it, it came out of Alberta and B.C., and it was all about being upset with the status quo, with the East, with the Central Canadian establishment. But to... Again, trying to correct people, when you talk Western uh, alienation, Western separatism, B.C. is the furthest West province in the country, and B.C. elected a lot of New Democrats and Liberal MPs to the legislature. So it's not—it's unfair to say there's Western uh, alienation or talk of Western separatism. Right. There's Alberta and maybe Saskatchewan alienation, and that's it. BC and other provinces are very much in lockstep with each other in terms of who they're voting for. Right, and now we hear that in Alberta, uh, the Premier there, Jason Kenney, is going to have some roving commission to hear from you know people in Alberta, and this just seems to me—it's just going to let people who are really angry sound off, and that just doesn't seem like a healthy debate. No, it doesn't. Jason Kenney is very much a populist. Uh, there are some dangers with populism, and we've seen it it's both on the left and the right. It can get a little carried away and lead to things to some either unintended consequences or consequences that were intended that really play on people's emotions and fears. And that may be very well what we're about to see unfold in Alberta. But back to your point about going on Calgary and Edmonton Radio, uh, the audience, when I go in there, it's a different audience and it's a different take on on an issue that uh, everybody across the country is talking about, whether it's uh, energy production or, or taxation. Alberta's in its own, I think, bubble on some of this stuff. And to talk now about separation, I think, is just irresponsible. Right, but 
I mean, I guess you can hardly blame, I guess, people for in Alberta for feeling that way because they're being fe- they have all these other they're, they're they're being fed all this other information. They are, and they're. I think they're. You know, the oil patch is suffering, and Alberta tied its economic chain to that industry, uh, and rode it to high heavens for many years, and it made very Alberta very wealthy. Uh, now it's hard times, harder times. There are people who have lost their jobs, and their and their companies have closed. There's no question, and I think everybody has to feel some sympathy for them. But I think people in Alberta are looking around for someone to blame. That there has there's one thing out there that's to blame, and it's other Canadians and other governments, and I just think that's an unfair accusation to make at other Canadians and other governments. It's, we're not the mm-hmm. ones who necessarily created that problem for it. It's world no. markets, and it's, it is delays in the court system. And also, we bought the, we're all paying for the pipeline. Like we bought the pipeline. <laughs> yeah. you know, Alberta has to realize that. Every, look, other Canadians own that thing, and, we're tr- and uh, the other governments are trying to get the, the, the new pipeline built, but it's being stifled in the court system, not by uh, various governments, including the B.C. government. All right. All right. Well, Keith, thank you so much. And uh, hey, good luck on social media. I've yeah, been... <laughs> I'll keep my head down if I'm in Alberta. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, Keith. Bye. That is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. I'm not kidding. Like, I was following along with his tweets last night at home, and I was like, ooh, oh, oh, geez. Okay. And just the response. And I thought, well, he is a brave, brave man going out on a limb and, and doing that. Uh, because, you know, Twitter is not known for the best of times for being any kind of place to have a rational uh, debate about issues, but that's uh, Keith Baldry's my hero because he goes right out there, plow, not even plows right in. He uh, dive bombs right into these discussions and not many people are up for that. Oh, one of my very favorite people is on our show right now. We keep dragging him back here whenever he's in town. He is Carson Arthur, landscape designer and host of HGTV, Canada's Home to Win, and a couple of other shows like County Gardens too, right? Like you're a busy guy. Yeah, I get around a little bit. A little, little yeah. bit. Although I'm not the host on Home to Win, saying Gita would shoot me for that one because she hosts it. I'm just one of the experts. I just happen to be the gardening expert, which is, you know, the most important one. It is the most important (laughs) one. Uh, We love talking gardening with you whenever you're in town. So thank you for coming back. My pleasure. We wanted to talk about fall gardening because I'm thinking like with the weather right now, it's time when you have to think about putting things to bed, right? Yeah. No pun intended. Okay. Maybe a little (laughs) pun intended, but there's so many things that people get wrong at this time of year. And that's what absolutely baffles me because we have such a huge gardening community here. And yet they're getting it wrong. What do you mean we're getting it wrong? So, for example, what do you do with your fall leaves? Uh, well, they get raked up and they get bagged. Mm. Yeah. Wrong. Uh, uh, uh. Are you sure? Because like my neighborhood is one of those neighborhoods that there's just, you can't even see the ground because <laughs> there's so many leaves. Like no, you have to do something. And I, and I get that. And that's great that you're cleaning them up. The thing that we're starting to learn, though, is leaves are Mother Nature's natural fertilizer. So when we're taking away the organic fertilizer and then we're going to the stores and buying the chemical-based oh. fertilizer, we're getting it wrong. So we now know that the leaves from a small tree, just a small maple tree, properly chopped up, composted, equal between $30 and $50 worth of store-bought fertilizer, it kind of makes you shake your head and go, why am I giving these away? Okay, but can I then, does that mean that I could perhaps just like leave a small blanket of them at the foot of the shrubs or whatever, and is that okay? Well, and that's the way to do it. Now, I'm always Yes, you got to get them off the lawn. So whether you're using a rake. I don't have a lawn. I got rid of my lawn. Amazing. Perfect. But for the people who do have grass, definitely (laughs) get it off the lawn. You want to be smart about that. But then have them, if you can chop them up, whether you have a mower or even one of the wheel um, lawnmowers, the push ones, chop them up and then put the chopped bits in around your perennials. It's fantastic nutrients, full of carbon, full of nitrogen. It's like free fertilizer. So that's all you need to do? Yeah. So you chop up the leaves. leaves. Yeah, because by chopping them up, it actually lets the leaf mold naturally get in there to start breaking down those leaves much faster. So you get the nutrients into the garden faster. So we are raking up and throwing away the fertilizer and then buying more. Right. And we're starting to see all this information coming out about those chemical fertilizers that we're addicted to. We won't say any big bad names, but you know the slow release nitrogen. I and feel all like that. you were close to saying uh, right there. I was, everybody <laughs> so who's listening is yeah. knowing exactly what I'm talking about. But these fertilizers are now staying in the ground six to eight years, and what happens is every hmm. year we put more and more on top of it. So we're actually saturating the soil with these chemical fertilizers, and they're leaching into our water tables. We're getting algae blooms that we should never be getting, especially our fresh water sources. And yet we have all the natural fertilizer that we need. Yeah. Scary, isn't it? Scary, yes, for Mm -hmm. this time of year. Mm -hmm. Nice little Mm -hmm. Halloween joke there, too. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Another scary thing is you were telling me 
if anybody is thinking about pruning right now or at this time of year, stop. Put the pruners down. Just put the pruners down. Just gently walk away from your pruners. Now, uh, let's set some clarification here. Okay. Uh, if there's a serious situation, like if you have a tree which is in not good health, obviously call an arborist. If they remove it, that's a good thing. If you have a branch that's split and it's hanging over your house and you, you want to take that down, absolutely get rid of that. Right. But generally, at this time of year, you shouldn't actually be pruning that much. And here's the reason nope. why. Most of our plants are getting ready for winter. I said the big bad word, but you know, it's it's coming. It's a reality. Thanks for that, Carson. Yeah. And all <laughs> of the energy is now going into the roots. But as soon as you start cutting or making cuts to it or start opening up the bark, the plant now says, uh-oh, 911, we got to heal that. So they take some of the energy back from the roots to heal the cuts. That's never a good oh. thing. Yeah. So that's a bad, bad idea. The other thing is most of our flowering plants, our flowering shrubs, need to be pruned within three weeks upon completion of blooming. So we should have already done it. Yeah. For many of them, it should have already been done. And the reason why is most of these flowering plants, not all, but a majority actually take a full year to set the next blooms. So if you cut the plant six months after it blooms, the likelihood of you actually pruning off next year's flower buds is really high. Oh. I always get conversations from people saying, why did my hydrangeas not bloom? You and cut I said, all the blooms off. I said, did you prune them? Yeah, I did. I said, well, you pruned off the blooms. So there are a few plants right now that are in bloom, some of the late hydrangeas. Wait till they're done flowering. Then you've got three weeks to give them a nice, nice little trim. Never more than one third of the plant can come off at a time. But you can give them a little trim going into the wintertime. That's okay for those specific plants. Right. Everything else, we're leaving alone until they're completely dormant. So you can prune in the middle of winter is what you're saying. Absolutely. In fact, if you've got fruit trees, that's the perfect time to prune. When the leaves are completely off of them, you can see all the different branches, the scaffolding levels, but also all the energy, the, the life force of the plant is now in the roots. So it's protected. Okay. Come spring, it's all going to come up. It will heal itself and off it goes. Okay. So for fruit trees in particular, mm -hmm. then what should we be doing at this time of year? Telling them they're beautiful and talking to them nicely. No, there's not do a lot to do. talk to your trees? <laughs> I do talk to my trees and I say, you got too many scabs this year. No. Uh, <laughs> this time of year, we want to make sure that we're taking our string trimmers or our leaf blowers and we're removing the leaves and the debris around the bottom of the tree. We don't want grass. We don't want things growing there because that's where all the fungal infections overwinter. Oh. So by cleaning up around the bottom, okay. that's what we're doing. So cleaning that all up. And I'm actually here as part of the Craftsman Tour for Rona and Lowe's talking about just that. This is the time to do cleanup only. No major changes, just cleanup. Okay, so that's what fall gardening really should be all about. Because a lot of times we think of it as, oh, it's time to put everything to bed. But it's not yet time to put everything to bed. Well, to bed is such a loose term because as soon as we use a blanket term like that, we get into trouble. Because some plants are not ready to go to bed yet. They're yeah, like the they're teenager like, no, kids. I got some partying I, left. I got things to do. Yeah. So when we say, oh, everything has to go to bed now, that's actually a mistake. So this is even a time of year where we can do some fertilizing, which surprises a lot of people. Really? Yeah, absolutely. You like can, what? You can put fertilizers in your gardens right now, specifically around root development, because we want our plants to have more roots to yeah. store more energy and overall health. That means the fertilizers that you're doing in the fall should have a high middle and a high last number. We don't want anything in that first number because that first number is nitrogen and that promotes leaf growth, which is not what we want for our plants. But the middle and the last number, again, are roots and shoots and overall health. It's like a vitamin. So you really only want the high number as the first number in the springtime. Absolutely. That's when I absolutely hit my lawns with a high first number, really get that good, that good green development. And I know there's lots of lawn fertilizers right now that say good for fall. But I always am very skeptical about that. When they're just nitrogen-based, the plants are only focused on above ground. And at this time of year, I know it needs the, the root development and that overall health. Because that is actually really going to help you. You know, if you don't get as much sun, if you don't, or if you don't get as much rain the next year, you don't water it as much. If they have stronger roots, your grass is going to be better off. And it's going to be more excited come spring to get going. Okay, this is all excellent, excellent advice. And so, like, what's going on at your place right now? What have you done? So we're actually getting into cooler temperatures. And cooler temperatures for me is very exciting because that's when I it can is? start planting bulbs. <laughs> oh, oh bulbs. everybody loves their bulbs. I do love bulbs. And you can't plant – You no, I'm going to correct myself there. You shouldn't plant bulbs until your daytime temperature is consistently below 6 degrees. You know that that doesn't often happen here. I know. That's why I'm always telling people, just wait, just wait, be patient. If you plant it and then we get a warm spell, often we get tulips shooting out of the ground in the middle of December. 
You don't want that. You want tulips to go into the ground and go dormant right away. But then how do you balance that with when the ground freezes? You want to just time it just right. So yeah, This is really hard, Carson. I know, and the gardeners are out there like, oh my gosh, but you have to be paying attention to the weather patterns. You have to know that the ground is going to get cold. You want the ground below four degrees consistently. It doesn't have to be frozen solid, but below four degrees because that's cold enough that when you put the tulips in or the crocus or the allium that they won't start so growing now they're going to yeah. grow in the spring after we go through, you know, whatever that white stuff is going to be. Uh, out here, maybe nothing. <laughs> but, no, but yeah, it happens. It does. It does. So are you on Twitter and Instagram? I am. So more on Instagram. I'm, I figured good gardening yeah, pictures, right? And a lot on Facebook. My Instagram is Carson's Garden Market because I actually opened my own little garden center this past oh, nice. year. Yeah. It's sort of like if Whole Foods and Starbucks got together to sell plants, that would be my garden center. That's very visual. Mm. <laughs> I, can, I can picture that. I would like, but it's back east. It's not out here. It's back east. I know. Do you think you Don't should have a me. national franchise we'll of these there, things? We'll get there. You think so? Yeah. I have alpacas. Because, I mean, this is the gardening <laughs> mecca, wouldn't you say? I beyond. mean, it's not Victoria. Vancouver Island is really the gardening yeah. mecca. Yeah. It, it is beyond. And I, I always look at how many people who aren't gardeners are successful here. And I think that's just not fair. But again, you have the perfect conditions for a lot of plant material. And then it surprises me when I get emails from this side saying, how do I do this? How do I do that? About plants that they shouldn't even be growing. I mean, it's great that you can, but stay away okay, from the palm I'm gonna, trees. I'm going to admit I have been guilty of that. Have you planted palm trees? Uh, no. Well, a long time ago. Okay. And it did survive because we were very good to it. We were, you know, always covering it up and the root and all that. And it was fine. But we left it behind at a previous house that we lived in. I Here's what I'm going to admit to. Okay. And this is very difficult. Is that I actually actually did try to plant bougainvillea. Right. You were not alone. Beautiful. Yeah. The first year it was there. Absolutely. <laughs> and then dead as a doorknob after that. Or if you get that that one nice winter and then you think, oh, it's going to do fine. It's going to do and great. I love bougainvillea. Like, I love it. Yeah. Can, can we just rewind to February last year? The eight inches of freezing slush that was everywhere. I know. Bougainvillea, not, not loving that. I know. I'm just going to have to <laughs> vacation places where you can see it because yeah. that's what I love. Yeah. So, I mean. Be, Are we bad for that then on the West Coast? Is it we think, oh, it's mild here. We can plant whatever we want. Or we think, oh, somebody else is doing it. I can do it too. That's the dangerous one. Well, how are they doing it then? And are they better gardeners? They may have better. They may have a better green thumb. They may have hired somebody with a better green thumb. But the thing is, you have to know what you're doing to grow some of these plants. We're taking your calls with Carson Arthur. Let's get right to it because we have a whole bunch of them. We have Dave on the line from Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Hi, Sami. Good news. Only 149 days of spring. It'd be 148, but it's a leap year. What can you do? What's your question, Dave? Hmm? What's your question? Okay, well, simply, Carson, uh, number one, no, I won't rake up the leaves because i got three minutes on a magnolia tree. Mm. But I want to ask about shade. Um, Every year I get increased shade from the trees. Maybe a neighbor builds a lane home. I have one neighbor, he put up uh, like a small tool shed. I no longer can grow tomatoes, peppers. Can Uh you talk about the importance of increasing shade in a garden? I think eventually I'll eventually have a fern garden. Right. Well, okay, so... My question to you is, is the shade a problem or is the shade just a problem because the plants that you want to grow don't do well in shade? Well, I'm smart enough to avoid the shade, but I think a lot of, you know, novice gardeners, I lecture in gardening, uh, perhaps are very disappointed, not realizing all of a sudden a greenhouse went up, well, not a greenhouse, right. but, a, you know, like a small, uh, you know, lane home went up or maybe a shed okay. or another tree is just grown substantially and uh, boom, why, why isn't my uh, vegetables okay. or whatever growing? Okay, thanks for that, Dave. So then, Carson, like what plant, what grows well in shade? Okay, well, let's be honest here. The leafier the plant, the better it's going to do in shade. And if you think of leaves like solar panels. The bigger the solar panel, the more energy it brings in. The bigger the leaf, the more energy it brings in for the plant. It does better in low light situations. Like hostas. It's a great rule of thumb. Absolutely. I think the bigger issue to his question was, why aren't we seeing more people focusing and celebrating shade gardens? Because then we wouldn't say, oh, I want to grow tomatoes. Then it would be, maybe I do want a gorgeous shade garden, just like this one that's being featured on the cover of the paper. Or, you know, we really need to change the shift, the gears, so that people understand that you can have beautiful things even in shade i think that's an excellent point let me go to robin who's called from richmond robin you have a question i do good morning, good morning. Uh, i'm just like simmy i love the bougainvillea which i bought this year and nice. i actually brought it inside my house 
Okay. Oh. So, um, and I also did that with my Brugmansia. Is there anything I need to know? It's actually just losing its flowers, but it looks pretty good. Like it's got new leaves and everything, but should I be putting it in a cooler place, a warmer place, sunshine, what? Right. Okay. So a couple of things. Did you spray down your plants before you brought them in? I did not. Okay. So we, we want to make sure we treat them with a little insecticidal soap. Because okay. we don't want to see white fly and fungus gnats and all the fun things which love to live on those plants come into the house with them, especially in the soil. Okay. So you can do insecticidal soap, which is one and a half tablespoons of just a regular dish soap to a liter of water. Okay. Or you can purchase one. It's very easy. The other thing is you have to think about what these plants usually like. And both of the plants that you mentioned are southern plants that like heat and they like lots of sun. Yeah. Now, you can put the Brugmansia into a dormant situation. You can put it into a darker room. It's not going to look great. It's going to lose its leaves. It's going to be a bit messy and then bring it back out in the spring. But for the Bougainvillea, I like to actually keep it in a sunny window and try and keep it going a little bit. Perfect. Thank you okay. so much. You're no, welcome. Thank you, Robin, for giving us a call. Let's go now to Larry in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Larry. Hi there. Um, I've got this fig, I believe, in the front yard. I moved into this new place last February. Um, I trimmed it back in the spring. It grew profusely, and all of these figs, like, started growing on it. And I was told it's like a pumpkin where they're a late mature. Um, now it has collapsed, totally looking oh. dead, and I don't know if I should clean it up leave it or what to do with it okay so let's uh you probably have one of the hardy figs but there are a few varieties that will die back down to the ground every single year so this may not necessarily be a bad thing for you what i want you to do is i want you to do a thumbnail scratch test and it sounds a little bit odd but i want you to go out and scratch the bark if there is actually still uh, green underneath that bark then the plant is still alive in that section if there's no green underneath you can actually start maybe pruning it lightening it up a little bit hoping that you're you're going to get new growth from the bottom of the plant. You got that? Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for that, Larry. That's a tough one, right? Because like sometimes yeah. things are gone. I want to quickly, Anne had emailed me, and I got to get this in. Uh, it's about a hibiscus. Okay. And she said, I never seem to be able to weather my plant. This year I have brought it inside. She wants to know, is that a good idea? Because if I put it in my garden shed, I'll forget to water it. Yeah, no, definitely bringing it inside is better than leaving it in the watershed and ignoring it. Uh, and most people, when they bring in hibiscus, forget that hibiscus, unless they're in equal sun, will start shedding leaves. And they will shed other leaves, they make a big mess, but then they will grow new leaves. And when we think about hibiscus and they've shed the leaves, we stop watering it because we're like, oh, it's dead, I've killed it. You have to keep watering your hibiscus all through the season. You can reduce it to once every two weeks once all the leaves are gone, but you got to stick with it. Don't give up on it, even though it looks like maybe it's ready for the compost pile. Carson, where can people find you if they have more questions? CarsonArthur.com. Easy breezy. Really? And you answer emails Every from single one. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And I do it in person. Yep. CarsonArthur.com. Mm. All right. No wonder you never reply back to me because I don't have any gardening Come questions. On now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on our My show pleasure. today. Come back anytime. That is Carson Arthur. Now, normally at this time, we would be doing science with Simi. We are doing it today, and it's really fascinating. It's all about bats and how important they are. But that's coming up a little later because we have some breaking news that we want to deal with right now. And this has to do with something you just heard about in the news, that the B.C. Supreme Court has ruled that the B.C. government's limit on medical expert reports in ICBC court cases is unconstitutional. Now, if you've had any kind of issue with ICBC, you know, over the last few years, you know that there's a lot of experts and expert reports uh, that lawyers kind of use to deal with the issue of damages and wage loss and all of those kinds of things. Government rules had restricted parties to one expert and report for claims of less than $100,000 and up to three experts for reports for all other claims. And now that has been Overturned. So why is this so significant? That's what we're going to talk about now with the help of Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter. Hi, Richard. I was worried it was going to be science with Richard. Oh, no, and don't worry. We would never science. ask you that. But I'm no. good at ICBC, so, so I, this I can handle. 
Okay, so tell me, why is this such a big deal? It's about money. Yeah, it's about big, big money. And when David Eby, the Attorney General, announced restrictions to these expert reports in February, he estimated that this would save $400 million a year. There are questions from the trial lawyers and others about where that number came from and whether it is actually that substantial. But now that the Chief Justice of the B.C. Supreme Court has ruled that those changes announced in February were unconstitutional, that $400 million in savings, Simi, disappears. And when you talk about that sort of money, now the provincial surplus, it disappears too. ICBC's goal to balance the books by the end of the year, that's gone too. You know, they had all factored in that these substantial changes as ICBC, not just the restriction on expert reports, but also the changes in terms of caps on settlements for soft tissue injuries, all that together was how they were going to fix ICBC. Well, they've lost a big part of that today uh, because of this court decision by uh, Chief Justice Christopher Hinkson. Right. And so this was something that was costing the system a lot of money because even when there was a settlement with ICBC, it meant that a lot of that money was going to these reports and these lawyers. So I'm sure some of the listeners have seen Michael Smith's story in the province today. Insane, right? A massive settlement where more than 80% of the money paid out was actually going to lawyers and experts rather than the actual person who was hurt in the ICBC case. So we've heard a lot of these stories. We've seen massive increases in the amount of money that have gone into the hands of lawyers for these expert reports. That's obviously concerning. The province says vehicle injury claims have gone up 43% in the past five years, and the use of experts has contributed to a 20% increase in ICBC's litigated injury settlements over the last year. But the listener's probably wondering why, because of this, Chief Hinkson ruled this way today. And it's, it's explained in a large ruling that has now been released, but I'll read you part of it, which I think summarizes it. I find that the impunged rule compromises and dilutes the role of the court and encroaches upon a core area of the court's jurisdiction to control its process. While I accept the submission of the Attorney General that the impunged rule does not prevent the court from receiving expert evidence entirely, I find that instead of leaving it to the litigants to meet their burden of proof by adducing the necessary evidence, it places a duty on the court to ensure that it has sufficient expert evidence before it determines its merits. I know there's a lot of legalese there, but basically what the Chief Justice is saying is the government's decision to make a restriction was not allowing the courts to operate the way they should be operating and giving people the right to fight for the best settlement they can get in order to ensure that they are made whole from a from an ICBC claim. Right, but in the end, though, I would imagine that, Richard, there are people who are upset by this because this is, you know, you see a settlement like in Mike's column today, $127,000. The actual victim in this case got $22,000 of that. Now, if I'm that person, I'm thinking to my lawyer, what the heck did you do? This is ridiculous. Right, and the lawyer will argue, we need to do everything possible to get you the most money possible, and that required a lot of expert reports. Other jurisdictions like Australia and in the UK have a system where the judge determines who the expert is, they agree on an expert, and because of that agreement, they can then move forward with this agreed expert. You know, all of that uh, is something I think the province will try to revisit, Obviously, this court ruling will be important there, but they're not done with this. They believe it's egregious how much uh, is being spent on these expert reports, and they're going to try to no doubt figure out a way. We're going to hear from David Eby, the Attorney General, in a few hours from now uh, to find out what the next steps are, but they're not done fighting uh, these overinflated costs for uh, expert reports. Now, this is one of the issues that Carol James also highlighted, right, in her last financial update as well. Yeah, and they have worked in... Uh, extra money concerned that this was going to be the case. This has been foreshadowed for months that they were concerned they were going to lose. Uh, The province had seen the initial uh, proceedings before the Chief Justice and I think got a sense that this was going to be the outcome today. And so there is some money built into the budget But the question is, where do those contingencies come from and how long can the province rely on those contingencies? Because not only does this mean $400 million based on the province's number this year, but to me, it could mean it going forward, right? Because we are going to continue to see these expert reports unless they are stopped. And 
that the court determines now in the way that the province tried to do it was unconstitutional. So I expect we'll continue to see expert costs go up as lawyers try to get the most money they can for their clients. And you can question where that money goes. Is it best served in somebody who's hurt or is it best served for a lawyer? That's to be debated. But I think we're going to continue to see this, and that's bad for ICBC's bottom line for a corporation that is really struggling to get back on track. All right, Richard, thanks so much for this update. Timmy, for you always. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you, Richard. It's Richard Zussman, our Global News Online legislative reporter. He's been crazy busy today with this and other stories that have been breaking. As we've been hearing in the news today, the B.C. Supreme Court has ruled that the B.C. government's new limit on medical expert reports in ICBC court cases is unconstitutional. Experts and expert reports are essentially used to uh, deal with the issue of damages, how much money somebody might be entitled to. And the government rules that they had implemented earlier this year restricted parties to use one expert and report for claims less than $100,000 and up to three experts and reports for all other claims. So as we heard, court has now overturned overturned those rules that had been set by Attorney General David Eby. And this could have big implications for the bottom line at ICBC. This change was expected to save more than $400 million while encouraging faster settlement. So what's going to happen now? We'll be hearing more from David Eby coming up a little bit later today. But right now we want to chat with Ron Nairn, who's the president of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. They were also involved in this court case. Uh, Ron, thank you for being here. Yeah, my pleasure, Simi. So your reaction then to the court ruling, I imagine you're pretty happy about that. We are. We're very pleased with uh, Mr. Justice Hankson's ruling. We think it was very measured and we think it was the right outcome. But Ron, how do we control some of these? Because it seems like in some examples that we've read about, there are a lot of costs and a lot of reports and that money is not going to the people who are the actual victims in these cases. Well, I think the first thing that you have to ask yourself are where are these numbers coming from? And they're coming from ICBC, who have been changing where their figures are for the last three years now on a a regular basis. So we don't accept the numbers that ICBC continues to publish. And what our focus is, is on the rights of individual British Columbians who have been injured through no fault of their own in car accidents. Right, but what I was actually talking about was a column from Mike Smith today about an actual court case that involved $122,000, and the def- the person involved actually only got about $22,000. Well, I've read that column, but I don't know anything more about it. It's difficult to comment on that without knowing the full particulars. But, you know, I, we don't know how that came about, and one of the reasons that so much money may have been spent Maybe because ICBC didn't come to the table and negotiate a fair settlement early in the process. So are there rules, Ron, for lawyers in cases like this about how much you are allowed to spend or how many experts in reports? Is there any kind of limit on the amount of money that lawyers are able to run up in a case like this? Sure, absolutely. And that is one of the things that has been most disingenuous about this whole new rule that Mr. Eby has uh, purported to bring in. We've always had limits on what we could do. They're set out, first of all, the court has discretion to not allow an expert to testify at trial if it's simply duplicative of other expert evidence. They won't allow that. And then at the end of the case, if there's any concern that a party has used extra experts, then there's a procedure whereby the court can review that and disallow those expenses if they were extras and and not required and unreasonable. Right, but it sounds like then we are reliant on the courts to do that. But I'm saying in the lead up to that, do lawyers have any limitation on the on what they are asking for? Well, the the lawyer has got to put forward a case that's going to, to prove their client's losses. And it's very expensive to do that, there's no question. They're not going to be getting any more experts than they feel that they need. If they do, they're going to be told by the court that they've wasted those resources and they're not going to be allowed to recover those expenses. That hasn't been happening in any significant degree, as far as I'm aware. So it's a problem that doesn't really exist. In other words, the courts are finding that the experts that are being brought to court are required in order to make the findings that they they need to make to decide cases. 
But Ron, I guess my other question then is, so does the court do that on their own? Do they look at the settlement and say, we feel this lawyer is asking for too much? Or does the defendant, the actual victim in the case, have to say to the court, help me out with these bills here, is this too much? Both. So at trial, the judge is always performing a gatekeeper role where he is or she is considering whether or not the expert that is being offered has something of any value to add to the case. If not, the expert is disallowed. Is At the end of any case, whether that goes to trial or by resolution, the party that is, is paying for those costs can question any of them and challenge those. Right. Is there any limit to how much experts can cost? The test is that the experts' um, fees have to be reasonable. And reasonableness is determined by the experts' qualifications, by the general rates that are charged by other experts in the field, the work done, those sorts of things. Do you think there may be, though, some cases where perhaps these costs get out of hand? Oh, I'm sure that there are. And I am sure that there are situations where, unfortunately, too much has been spent on experts and other trial preparation Mm -hmm. costs. As I say, in part, that's because of ICBC's position in these matters. But this is something that the trial lawyers identified many years ago as something that we would have worked with the government on and looked for appropriate and creative solutions in order to control costs, rather than trying to do something that arbitrarily limited the rights of people that are attempting to come to court in order to get fair compensation. You talked about that in the past tense, though, Ron. So does that mean negotiation is dead here, or is that still a possibility? Well, it's something that we brought to the government two years ago or or about when the NDP first took office, and uh, they didn't pursue that with us and instead brought in this relatively arbitrary rule. So um, that's that was the response that we got. Is there a, a, a possibility, though, that this could still be negotiated with the provincial government? Well, there is a committee that uh, deals with... Uh, matters of rules of court and deals with all of these issues, including matters like costs. And that's something that could all be brought before that committee. All right. Well, Ron, thank you very much for your time on this today. Thank you very much. That's Ron Nairn, who's the president of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC. They were, of course, deeply involved in this court case where the BC Supreme Court has now ruled that the BC government's limit on medical expert reports in ICBC court cases is unconstitutional. Now, if you have found yourself in a situation like this, right, where, and, you know, and I have in the past where you're trying to get some help from ICBC and they don't even return your phone calls. Believe me, I've been in that situation before. And so then you go to a lawyer to try to get some help. You have to ask yourself, though, did the lawyer ever say to you, listen, I'm going to get this expert and this expert and it's going to cost this much money. Are you okay with it? Is that something that runs by? And would you say, yeah, okay, fine, we'll get that money afterwards? Because I wonder, do you just leave that to the lawyer and therefore the bill gets run up or do they run things by you ahead of time? Now, let's get your thoughts on this too. You can call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Or you can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is a pretty significant thing. These cases undoubtedly have been getting more and more expensive. And yes, for a long time, I think ICBC was definitely to blame. Those are some of the sounds in Victoria today. Those are drummers from the Lekwunga Nation playing inside the BC legislature. It is quite an historic day. Premier John Horgan has introduced legislation that makes BC the first province in the country to work towards implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Premier calls it a catalyst for change. It mandates the government to bring provincial laws and policies into harmony with the aims of the declaration. And so what does this declaration do? Well, it gives Indigenous peoples the right to redress or compensation for traditional lands that are used, taken, or damaged without their, quote, free, prior, and informed consent. But the BC government maintains that that does not mean a veto over resource projects. Uh, That is something that has kind of been debated ever since this came up. Uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillips spoke in the legislature today about how pleased he is to see this happening. 
you know, I still can't uh, wrap my mind around this, that this is actually taking place. And I'm sitting there thinking, the next leadership council meeting I go to, I'm going to say, I had the most incredible dream last night. <laughs> <laughs> I dreamt we were all in the legislature. <laughs> I believe that we are at a point in our history that we begin to realize that um, we are indeed in this together in every sense of the word. And what we have relied on for so many decades in terms of governing just is not working. I think the last federal election was a prime example. And I think archaic institutions and practices uh, need to change. And um, that's what we're witnessing. More and more of our people are beginning to engage in the political process and allowing their names to stand provincially or federally. That was unthinkable 20 years ago. And yet now our people are beginning to realize we are in this together. And we need to be part of the the institutions that determine the well-being of our families and our communities. And I think that's a very positive development. That is Grand Chief Stuart Phillips speaking in the legislature today about this legislation. Meanwhile, Premier John Horgan also told the legislature that he is determined to walk a path of reconciliation. BC is the first province to put in place a declaration on the rights of Indigenous peoples, to bring the UN Declaration into law. This bill is critically important because Indigenous rights are human rights. We all want to live in a province where the standard of living for Indigenous peoples is the same as every other community in the province. We all want to live in a province where no Indigenous children are in the care of government. And instead, we want to live where there are record numbers of Indigenous students graduating from high school and participating in post-secondary training. This legislation is a real catalyst for significant change. It's a forward-looking and collaborative document, and it will help us end discrimination and create opportunities for Indigenous peoples, families, communities, and businesses. I want to acknowledge the partnerships that got us here. This legislation would not have happened were it not for the leadership of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, the First Nations Summit, and the Assembly of First Nations BC Branch, Terry. Uh, we have taken a great step forward today, but the patience and advocacy of Indigenous leaders, whether it be the First Nations Leadership Council or those represented in the House today and indeed across British Columbia, their patience, their tolerance, and their perseverance and advocacy for not more than anyone else has, but the same as everyone else has. Not to take rights away from people, but to share in the abundance and bounty of the lands that they have populated for time immemorial. That is Premier John Horgan. Now, there's a lot of people at this event at the legislature today, right? Because this is a big deal. This is modeled on the legislation that made it through the House of Commons uh, federally, but then died on the order paper in the Senate because the election got called. Uh, so BC is doing something that the federal government was moving towards doing as well. So because this is such a momentous occasion, and because everybody is there in Victoria, we wanted to obviously talk to somebody about, well, what does this really mean? How do we put this into practice? What is the long-term outlook for this? Because it is something that will have decades and decades of impact here in BC, but they're all at the ceremony at the legislature. So we are going to have to wait to have that discussion, but we are definitely going to be doing it because you have questions like I have questions. Like, what does this really mean? Will this mean progress? Will this put into place a framework that we can all work from to move forward? Uh, we Those are all discussions that we are going to be having. So there's more to come on that. So what does it take to become a leader in Vancouver's very competitive nightlife industry? And especially if you are 
on the young side. How do you do that? <laughs> Jasmine Mooney, well, that's why we have her here. Jasmine Mooney is the owner and managing partner of Banter Room and the partner and director of marketing events for the Hotel Belmont. She was recently listed in BC Business's 30 Under 30 list, and she joins us now. I said on the young side <laughs> because you are. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I think I'm still pretty young. Yeah, you all, well, listen, you are very young to be doing like so much work. What is it about this particular industry? industry that you like so much? I mean, I've been in this industry since I was 15 years old. I've been a social butterfly my entire life. I just, I love people. And I think the thing I like most about this industry is I, I love people. I love seeing people have fun. I just love seeing people have a good time. I love seeing people socialize and laughing and smiling. And that's kind of what always kept me in this industry. But it also keeps you working hard because I <laughs> asked you when you came in here, when is your downtime? And you said, what downtime essentially? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a 24-7 industry, that's for sure. What is it then? So that you do, what do you love about it? Is it the social aspect? Like what is so appealing to you? You know, it's there, you have everything. You have eating, you have drinking, you have celebrating, you have seeing your staff have fun and make money. You see people coming in and having their birthday parties and having a great night out. It's just, it, you're constantly stimulated by people. And that's always been such an tr- attraction to me. How competitive is this business? The most. Really? <laughs> the most. You know, when you think about it, there's always something new opening. Right. Um, you just have to keep on trend and keep giving people what they want because you, there's always something new in every other month, every week, there's something new out there. Well, especially in bars is what we were talking about here is that everybody wants to go to the new hot place. Of course. So once you are the new hot place, is it only a matter of time before you're not the new hot place anymore? Oh, 100%. You know? That's hard. It, it is hard. Yeah. But you know, when you have a great following and you have a great staff and you have um, great people that come in, that's been our greatest success is our regulars and our staff and cons- and having that family culture that keeps bringing people back. You're under 30 years old. I'm th- uh, I'm 30. Okay. <laughs> I just turned just 30. <laughs> scraped it in there. You're 30. You've been in this business since you were 15. Mm-hmm. What kind of changes have you seen during that time? Oh my gosh. It's, it's endless from just how creative you can get and how you can take things to the next level. And that's one thing my business partner and I are always trying to come up with or like, what's, what's engaging, you know, look at social media now and everyone wants to post their food and post their drinks and yeah. post their, the vibe. So, you know, you really, like when I was 15, we didn't have social media. It was all word of mouth. You make it sound like you're ancient. You're not. <laughs> you're not ancient. But I guess that's a good point, though. Like, if everybody wants to post their cool, creative drink on Instagram, how do you make sure that drink is Instagrammable? You start getting really creative. I mean, at at Banter Room, we we have these colossal cocktails that are these big jugs with huge straws that you sit in the middle of the table and everyone's posting about it because everyone can drink out of it. Um, We have a champagne vending machine that anytime people order from, they're posting about it. So you just, you, it's all the creative aspect. And that's also something I love dearly about this industry is we get to do what we want and come up with things that no one's done before. So there's no such thing as, no, we can't do that. I mean, there are some things we'd other like to do. Other than the obvious, other, yeah. Uh, other than, like, legality issues. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, um, you know, that we love traveling and going to the States and going to Southeast For Asia. research. Research. Yeah. That's the best. And then bringing things that we find all around the world and bringing them back to Vancouver. Now, is this all self-taught for you, Jasmine? I, yes, yep. I would say yes, it is. And so you've done your homework because you've been working in the industry for 15 years. It's more as I look around and I see what people like and I see what works and I see what doesn't work. And I say, you know, if I want to go to a place, what do I, what is the type of place that I would want to go to? And that's worked for us. And guess what? Our places aren't for everyone. And that's okay, too. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that's what I'm wondering because at some point if you're not like so it's not about attracting everybody it's about attracting a certain crowd and what does that mean it's it's just in this industry it's impossible to keep everyone happy true some right pe- some people want to go for a dinner where there's the music is quiet and they have their privacy and they're not being bothered that's not your place that's not our place yeah no. <laughs> Our place is a scene, you know, people come to socialize and meet people and the music's louder and um, and it's not for everyone, but that's okay. So what is the hottest drink right now? Like if somebody wanted to come in and be on point, what should they order? Oh my gosh. Um, from which place? From Banter Room? Let's say Banter Room. Okay, so Banter Room, we do a lot of um, fun cocktails. We smoke cocktails, our colossal cocktails. Um, the spi- the bad ombre spicy margarita is my favorite. You smoke cocktails. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> you have to like, come and find out and see for yourself. That is something new. That must be so challenging right now, though, because I know that like cocktails, mocktails, all of that. It's the pressure on bartenders these days to create something. Mixologists, I guess they're also called to create something new or better, bigger must be immense. Oh, it's it's a science. Like it's insane. I love watching our bartenders uh, come up with new things and they're always experimenting and the possibilities are absolutely endless. And same thing with food, right? You're always trying to come up with the next crazy thing and it that's the fun part too is exploring. Is right now would you say it's over the top everything is over the top you're talking about colossal cocktails so the more over the top you can make it is that kind of what's in fashion right now? Absolutely. I mean we just asked one of our liquor reps to for our football Sundays we wanted a remote control car that drove drinks around to people. Fantastic. And I couldn't believe what they came up with. It was amazing. Wait a minute. So you have that? Oh, we have that. Really? Yes. That was an excellent <laughs> advertisement, by the way, for coming down there and checking the place out, because that even tempted me. That's saying something. It's hilarious. And you, it, that's the fun part, too, right, is you just start driving this car, this car full of beer around to people, and they're like, what is going on? What is going on right now? Wow. Okay, so that's even just like staying on top of things. But let's talk about uh, leadership issues here as well. Being a boss is very different than kind of working in the industry. And was that how was that transition when you made it? It was the hardest. Was it? Absolutely the hardest um, because I've been in this industry for so long. I went from working with people as equals to now becoming their boss and hiring. A, you know, Vancouver is a small place and we had a lot of people that I knew that my partner knew come in and work for us. And when you're making that transition from friend to boss, it's very different. It's very different. Um, but I feel like they've respected me so much that it, that, that really helped and they wanted to see us succeed. And, you know, the more money we make, the more money they make. And when you have a successful business, they're, they're happy. So have you ever had to lay off a friend? Not a friend. I've never had to lay off a friend, but I remember having to lay off the someone for the first time and that was that was difficult right that's one of the biggest no it isn't right that must be I always think that's one of the hardest things about being a manager is when you have to do that I know I know so what are some of the lessons that you have learned when it comes to being the boss like what are do you have a set of rules that you go by for me it's just putting myself in their shoes which is helpful because I've been in their shoes for so long so I know how I like to be treated and I know how to how I wanted to be respected in a workplace and it's all your staff are so important they're literally the most important thing in any business and if you keep your staff happy they're going to respect you they're going to stick around and they're going to have your back and that's the what I always tell myself. Well, that brings up the question then of like the labor shortage that we have here as well. I know a lot of places struggle to find employees. Have you had that problem? Yes, definitely. Um, More so back a house, Um, but we're always, you know, the turnover in our industry is so high. Uh, People go back to school, um, summer's over, you're constantly looking for new employees. So how do you deal with that? How do you attract new employees all the time In in an already very tight labor market? For us, our biggest success for keeping and attracting employees is the culture that we've created. You know, we are more than just a restaurant. We have soccer leagues. We have bowling leagues. We have um, soccer leagues. 
And we just create this fun culture that people want to work there and they see everyone else, um, you know, having fun, having fun, posting about the job. They're all hanging out after work. It's, it's a small industry. I guess. So yeah, that's really interesting because like a lot of business, bigger businesses will say they probably um, haven't thought as much about culture as now they have to, to try to attract some employees. Oh, what it's look at all the biggest tech companies in the world. Their, their whole program is about culture. And when you have an amazing culture that people want to be a part of, that's what keeps people there. So when you took a step up, when it became you were no longer on the same level with people, where you were now their boss, was that something you had always wanted to do or was that something that came more organically? It absolutely fell into my lap. And sometimes I wake up and still can't believe that. Really? <laughs> that well, yeah. you obviously must have shown some qualities. Absolutely. I, um, it all happened when I was working in a place in Yale Town previously and met a bunch of people that became very close friends of mine. And one thing led to another and they asked, let's open our own place. And within six months, it was just, it was happening. It, it, I didn't even have time to really think about it until the doors opened and I'm like, oh, let's okay, do this. this. This happened. So in that case then, Jasmine, do you have any advice for people who they would want to take that step up? They don't always want to be the server. They want to take that next step. Absolutely. And that's something that I want. I pride myself in encouraging and being a role model for my staff to say, you know what, if, you, if, if an opportunity is given to you, take it, jump on it. Don't be afraid. You can do it. So even if they're going to leave you shorthanded, if they do that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, ask me if you want to open a place with me first yeah. before you go and open one. But what's next for you then? You said this happened to you organically. This is just one of those things. But now do you stop and think about, okay, where do I go from here? Oh, all the time. Yeah. I mean, it, and that's the beautiful thing about being an entrepreneur is the opportunities are endless. And I think my business partner and I have really proven ourselves Um but we, we definitely want to expand the Banter Room brand. That's a goal of ours in the next foreseeable future. But like I said, when an opportunity falls in your lap, you need to jump on it if it's the right move. I also think it's funny. You don't want to tell us too much about those business plans, right? <laughs> <laughs> you looked a little bit cagey when she was talking about what's coming up there. So she didn't want to confess too much about that. Uh, so that is critical as well. I always find that's true. It's like you get to one spot, but are you always thinking about the next? Oh, you, you have to. You have to. I mean, but some people, some people are okay with, they're like, this is my baby. I'm just going to, this is it. They don't want the more more stress because it is yeah when was the last time you had a day off i actually just went to vegas last weekend so i uh was that really a day off though (laughs) was it it was probably a lot of homework that you had to do there right so that's the thing about being an entrepreneur as well is that it's no rest for the weary everywhere i go i'm just looking what are they doing what are like how's what what are they putting in that cocktail? What are look at that decor? Look at that artwork. So well, I don't think I was looking around the room here. I was like, I don't think you're going to get very much inspiration <laughs> here. But Jasmine, thank you so much for talking to us no, today. Thank we you appreciate so much that. For having me. That's Jasmine Mooney. She's the owner owner and managing partner of Banter Room and the partner and director of marketing and events for the Hotel Belmont. She was talking to us as part of the CKNW Leadership Series.